Today's conversation is so pertinent, I can't even tell you. My guest is Dr. Helen Turnbull, who is a world-recognized thought leader in global inclusion and diversity. And her research focuses extensively on unconscious bias, inclusion blind spots, and gender bias. She has an unparalleled knowledge on the complexity of inclusion and a topic that rightly is front of mind, center in all our worlds right now. She's the author of three online psychometric tools on unconscious bias and inclusion. And she has also spoken about, I was watching the TED talk earlier, Helen, um, and read the book around the, the illusion of inclusion. So you work with leaders around the world. You've worked with some amazing organizations, all with the focus of helping them to build a culture of inclusion. So tell me about the book. Tell me about the title and, and what inspired you in terms of the illusion of inclusion. Now, what inspired me uh, on the illusion of inclusion is that I've been doing this work for many years and realized that there's such a deep knowledge and understanding that's required to really begin to come to the table uh, as, as an ally um, and to, to work on the issues of inclusion. I do believe most of us, most of us are well-intentioned. I do believe we go to work every day wanting uh, to include other people, but there's a myriad of ways in which we don't include and we send messages that we're not being inclusive and a myriad of ways in which uh, we leave people feeling that they're not being noticed and not being valued. And, and yet we don't always see them. And they're not always about our unconscious biases. Some of them are actually our conscious biases <laughs> in small ways. So um, I have a lot of passion on this subject uh, and I've been working in it for many years. So, and as you said, it's more important than ever uh, that inclusion matters at all times. But now it matters more than ever that we begin to understand this. So what was it around the word illu the illusion of inclusion? Because uh, diversity and inclusion and equity and gender parity, I mean, there are different flavors of this conversation that certainly when I started my career in banking in the UK, when uh, it was all predominantly male bank managers, um, there was a big effort to increase the number of women in leadership positions, diversity in terms of ethnic minorities in leadership positions, positions and yet it feels like the needle hasn't moved yes absolutely and, and i think that that's the issue it is i have a couple of things that I, I often say to clients first one is we hire for diversity and we manage for similarity so we bring i'll repeat yeah. that we we hire for diversity and manage for similarity, okay. which means that we, like you were saying, in the banking industry all these years ago, at other corporations as well, we bring diverse people in. We, we know we need to, and we do it. So you can look around the organization. And the other thing I say is, just because you've got them doesn't mean you get it. Mm -hmm. And you can have a diverse workforce, but still not be creating an inclusive work environment. So for me, the reason I said the illusion of inclusion is that we can create the illusion that we're being inclusive, but the people inside the system know that their voices are not being heard, that they're not seeing the promotions, yeah. that they're not being treated fairly. And, and so I think we have a lot more work to do that, than, than people realize. 
It's interesting because Dr. Linda Sharkey and I, in our book, The Future Proof Workplace, we have a, a whole chapter on diversity. And we make that point that you can invite people to have a seat at the table, but if they don't feel like they belong when they get there, then they're not going to stay. And it can be everything from the, the locker room behavior, the use of language, the just the how we relate yes. can influence that. And if we're not being curious to understand what's working and what's not for you, the first we know is when, well, even if we pay attention, the first we might know is when you resign and leave. And then we're wondering what happened. What happened, yes. Yeah. And then we have an evolving door. Yeah. So you t you describe the word inclusive, though, as a soft word. Yes. Why is that? Because I think it's, it, it is a soft word. It's not threatening. It kind of, everybody wants to believe they're inclusive. Everybody agrees that we should have an inclusive workplace. No one argues against that concept. The problem is to do the actual work of creating inclusion is much more difficult. It is much more challenging. It really says we have to look at the systems. We have to look at the systemic issues of oppression, for example. We can't just say, well, let's bring in 20 women and, and 10 people of color and we'll promote a couple of them. That, that's not going to create inclusion. Inclusion in many ways is, is a mindset in, mm -hmm. in terms of how we think about each other and treat each other, but it requires us to do our own work. It requires us to take stock of me internally. What are the things I think about? Who are the people I'm comfortable with? Whose accents do I find uh, pleasing to the ear? And whose accents can I just not listen to? Uh, because when I can't listen to you, I'm not taking you seriously. I'm, I'm not including you. I'm not giving you the project. I'm not promoting you because I can tell myself, you know, I don't understand most of what that person says. So my client might not either. So there's so many, so many ways that we can exclude people while we think we're being inclusive and we think we're making good decisions for the business. Okay, so we all come with biases. You've already mentioned the fact that some of them aren't even unconscious biases. They're quite overt biases, even if we aren't aware of them. And in the book, you talk about three immutable forces. Mm -hmm when it comes to inclusion. So what do you mean by an immutable force and what are those three forces? So what I mean by immutable forces is that they're never going to go away, but they're not well understood. And so my the case for the illusion of inclusion and moving beyond that is that we need to understand the existence of these three immutable forces and what they are and what they're doing and what part do I play in that? So the first immutable force is dominance. It's the okay. issue of the dominant culture and then marginalized culture. So if you take gender, for example, you're looking um, from, <clears throat> from a gender point of view as having men as the dominant culture and women as the marginalized or subculture. Uh, if you look at race and any aspect of race, you can say in the U.S., certainly right now with everything that's happening, that white people are the dominant culture, people of color, African-American, Asian, Latinx, etc., Middle Eastern, are, are the marginalized or subcultures. And there's a dynamic there. And it's important to understand that along with dominance comes privilege and power and entitlement systemically. Which leads to a second piece of this dynamic, which I can also talk about, is the individual versus the group mindset. So when, when I'm a white person and I hear you say to me that, well, you, you're a member of the dominant culture, <clears throat> my brain splits into two. Part of me says to you, no, Morag, I'm not. 
I'm an individual mm -hmm. and you know, I grew up poor. Yeah. And I'm not racist and I'm not sexist. And so I can separate, <clears throat> separate myself from the group. But the other part of you has to know that other people are seeing you as a white person. So there's an individual identity that allows me to distance myself and say, I'm a good person. And then there's the systemic identity that says, yes, but other people see you as white. And the minute they see you as white, they see the dominance, they see the privilege. Because the truth is, I, I used to play golf as a little girl, 12, mm -hmm. 13 years of age in Scotland. And... Um, I never noticed. I noticed gender issues because women were only allowed on the course on a Tuesday and a, su a Sunday. If wow. accompanied by a male, right? Male oh, member. Yeah. <clears throat> but I never noticed that there were no people of color members of our golf course because I saw gender at, the, at that point in my life. I never saw culture and race. And so it's what do we see around dominance? Who's acceptable and who's not? So the issue of dominance is never going to go away. What will change is who's dominant. So when the demographics begin to shift, you know, in the next 20 years in the United States, it's entirely possible that white people will be the minority culture. And that's part of what we're seeing today, sadly, um, that, you know, inclusion allows us all to come to the table. If we tip the scales and dominance just changes who's dominant, we have the same dynamic with different players. So we have to understand dominance and how it, how it, it emanates um, privilege and entitlement, even when I individually think it's not me. Yeah. So I, I see that. Is it a dichotomy? Is it a continuum between the self-identity and social identity? Because I'm assuming that inclusion isn't around 7 billion people on the planet. Every single individual is, res is respected for their unique contribution. And yet, we, as, a, as an individual working with a, a large group, you can't manage and flex that many times. We start stereotyping. We start mm. broad brushing, which then results in what you've described there. And I know I've experienced when people describe, well, England and everybody has bad food or bad teeth and all of this sort of stuff. And some yeah. of it's true, but some of it's stereotypes. And then to your point, my mind splits and I'm going, but that's not me. Right. Indignation. So how do we balance that, the uniqueness that each of us brings as we identify with different groups? Like I'm a ballroom dancer, I'm a classical musician, I am also a white mother, a woman, I'm a, a mother, I'm a, mm -hmm. and yet embrace the broader group how do we balance that yes yeah, so I, I think that first of all it's education and awareness more like we have to get to know and understand because some people push against the idea of um, the lack of inclusion because they feel they're being personally accused mm -hmm. and, and you can you can move away from that feeling of accusation if you understand this systemically it's not personal every single one of us has multiple social identities. So mm -hmm. I'm a white woman. I'm also a woman. I'm also a baby boomer. I'm also from Scotland. I'm also a Christian. So these are multiple identities. Mm -hmm. And at any given time, one of them becomes more important than the other. And that can change even in the same day. So, so the first thing we have to do is become aware of this phenomenon, that mm -hmm. individual versus social identity groups is real. The second thing we have to realize is that um, you may not see yourself, and I've heard people say to me, I don't see myself as a white male. And I'm like, but what if other people do? Yeah. 
So that's the secondary part of the work is to recognize it's not just what you see and how you think of yourself. It's what people are projecting onto you because yeah. of your identity. The third thing is you need to do your own work and become comfortable with this. To your point, not even I rush around in my daily business trying to say to people, listen, I noticed you're shopping for groceries right now, but I also noticed that you, you look like you're Asian. Let's talk. Or you look like you, you might be from another culture. It, it's something for us to know, to take in and to understand, and to to have that be an increased... I, I talk about having an, a, an increased frame of reference on the world okay. so that we have to begin to, to... To be less threatened by what's going on, we have to begin to understand it at a systems level. So I, I taking myself out of the story personally and looking at what's happening to all of us together and how do we begin to frame that so that I can understand it rather than be afraid of it. So that brings us back to those immutable forces, the first one being dominance, which is connected with privilege. You talk about unconscious biases, so I'd love to know more about that in a moment, but that's, to your point, being aware of what am I even thinking and experiencing and can I empathise and put my... be curious about others' perspectives. So you've got dominance, unconscious bias, and then you talk about degrees of difference. Yes. So and tell me about that. So degrees of difference means that when, when we think about diversity, we tend to be very almost bipolar about it. We mm. look at gender and we say men and women. And initially we used to say, well, let's train the women. Uh, let's, let's train mm. them to be more like men. They can wear neckties and they can be more mm. direct in speaking, etc. And that wasn't the answer. So then we said, well, let's bring people together and have them talking to each other and understand each other. But what happens is organizations uh, pay attention to the vertical axis. So they train from the top down. They make sure their senior leaders are knowledgeable and then they roll something out. What degrees of difference means is that we have to pay attention to all of the horizontal axis. So there's diversity among men too. So mm -hmm. I sometimes have clients say, well, Helen, I really need you to do this work with this leadership team, but there's only white men on it. Can we still do that? And I said, yes, we can, because mm -hmm. there's diversity amongst these white men as well. And we can talk about their diversity, and then we can relate it to the systemic issues of dominance. So if you're a white man who's gay, for example, then you understand the intersectionality there, you understand the oppression, you understand the need to be careful when you're interacting with dominance. So, so for me, there's diversity amongst men, there's diversity with women. When we say women, we quite often unconsciously think white women. Mm -hmm. We don't always take in the stories for ethnic minority women, women of color. We don't take in the stories for lesbian women, etc. So when yeah. I say degrees of difference, I really mean let's unpack the, the horizontal axis on each of these issues. It was interesting. There was um, uh, another short video that I watched recently. I used it in a, a leadership program that we facilitated, just replaying it, where they went into a, an elementary school, I believe it was back in the UK, and asked three classes to draw pictures of a firefighter, a fighter pilot, oh. and a surgeon. Have you even seen that one? And yeah. of the 60 kids or whatever, I think five drew pictures that had women in those roles. Everybody else, it was all men. And so it, it tells me that this starts very early yeah very early and of course unconscious bias is the very title they're unconscious mm -hmm. I, I 
to ah so you've authored three tools that would help us to understand our, our biases how do you start to dig into unconscious biases and making them overt well, I, first of all, I don't think unconscious bias will ever go away. I think mm -hmm. it lives in our DNA. As you said, we get these messages from a very young. They're kind of imprinted. They're mm -hmm. what I call mind viruses. They're there. And, and you have to catch them at the back of your neck, move them to the edge of your shoulder so that they're in your peripheral vision, and check in with them before things come out your mouth or before you make decisions. So I think we have to own the fact my unconscious biases are alive and not well. I'm making decisions based on them, and I need to catch them when it happens. So that's the first thing. I think the other thing is that um, they can manifest in all kinds of ways. They, they manifest, I mean, confirmation bias, pattern recognition bias. We, we don't even realize how often we move to look for something that's familiar. We're ruling people in and out of our lives based on what we're comfortable with, what we're familiar with. So. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, over e eons of evolution, it's what's kept us alive. So yes. we are trapped by our DNA, but we can also choose to do different. So you talk about four permeable forces, mm -hmm. and they touch on the biases that we've just started to talk about. So what are the four permeable forces, and what do I need to be paying attention to? So the, the first one is fairly well known. It's called affinity bias or mini-me syndrome. Okay. It's the tendency we all have to surround ourselves with people who make us comfortable. And that's not to be... Um, not to be confused with the idea that I'm, as a white woman, I'm only looking to be around other white women. The idea of looking for people who make me comfortable is that I'm also looking for value systems I agree with, political ideas I agree with. So that person can be diverse in terms of how they look or their gender, etc., but their value systems aligned with mine, and so they make me comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, but conversely, for affinity bias, people who don't make me comfortable, I, I don't allow them into my inner circle. I don't believe that that tendency is ever going to go away. What I do believe is the challenge and the work we have to do is to widen our circle, mm -hmm. widen the pe people who make me comfortable uh, and pay attention to who I'm ignoring. So if you're a senior leader, you need to be conscious of who am I not listening to in the meetings? Who do I never look at? Who is that I make a point of saying good morning to? And who am I ignoring? Mm -hmm. Because people are picking up these little subtle messages. So affinity bias shows up in all kinds of ways. It shows up in who we shake hands with in a meeting and who, who we have eye contact with. And the people who get ignored not, notice it. Yeah, no, I can remember making that mistake early in my career where there was a member of my team that I just connected with. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, we'd go down and have a cup of tea. And it wasn't that I was excluding others, but mm -hmm. certainly that was the unintended consequence that they felt that I was playing favorites. And so that was an eye opener for me to, to your point, to be a pay attention. Who am I spending time with? Who am I asking for their opinion from? Um, who do I need to actively seek out yeah. so that I can better understand them, but also draw them into the conversation. All right, so affinity bias, what, what's the next one? The, the second permeable force is called assimilation or covering. And assimilation is, is kind of the flip of the coin from affinity bias. It's what 
um, people in marginalized cultures, whether it's gender, race, a culture, sexual orientation, etc., what people have to do to fit in with the dominant culture and mm -hmm. to make comfortable so <clears throat> changing my style a little bit to make sure that I fit in trying to accommodate making sure I please you in what I say and how I say it um, and I, I believe that those of us who have to assimilate become very skilled at it we seamlessly move in and out of assimilation behaviors all day long and don't even know we're doing it but it is part of the exhaustion so at the end of the day mm -hmm. say I'm tired and I can't really explain to you why I'm tired. Part of the, the exhaustion is constantly shifting my style, asking myself, who am I comfortable with? Who can I be myself with? Who can I bring my best self to the table? And who am I having to put on a show for uh, or hide parts of who I am? And so assimilation, um, I think it, it was Deloitte University who did a really good study on, they call it covering my um, PhD is, is on the issue of internalized oppression and, um, and assimilation. And they talked about, I think they spoke to 3,500 people. And so everybody does some assimilation and covering at work, even quite heterosexual mm -hmm. Christian men. But when you look at diversity, uh, people of color, people who are gay and lesbian are bringing less of their authentic self to the table. Yeah. So, so it's impacting our mental models, it's impacting the words we may choose to say, whether we speak up or don't speak up, whether I walk through the door first or hold the door for you. I mean, all of this is impacting everything. everything. I usually start my keynotes by asking the audience, if I could give you a 10% improvement in productivity and bottom line, would you be interested? And they always say yes. Mm -hmm. and I say, Let's talk about inclusion because I believe that the dynamics of this inclusion complexity model, if we could understand them, we could bring people to the table to be free to bring their best selves to the table, to be more productive, to be more engaged. Well, you and I both use the phrase of being an ally um, in our respective works. And for me, that means I can turn up and take informed risk, that I'm willing to call out the BS when I hear it, um, that I'm going to celebrate your success because I want you to succeed, not just me. It's about us. And inclusion is going to those same things. It's allowing everybody to thrive to the best of their ability versus hesitating and holding back and diluting that impact. Yes. And actually, when you talk about becoming an ally, it's very pertinent today with everything that's going on in the world and in, in the country, in the US. It, it's a lot of um, people who are not uh, African-American or Black wanting to become allies, wanting to demonstrate that they're allies. And yet, not always knowing how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we ask ourselves a question, are we standing on the edge of Groundhog Day or are we really standing on the edge of a tipping point? Are we as allies willing to stay the course? Will we still be there when the television cameras go off and mm -hmm. we move on to a different story? And if we are there, what kind of allies are we willing to become? Uh, I have several clients now calling up and asking me to run webinars on becoming an ally and what it's going to take because it's, it's a really important question. Um, and I know a lot of my colleagues walking on eggshells around, well, what do I say? I want to be yeah. supportive, uh, but help me understand. 
And I think part of understanding Morag is understanding the dynamics that I'm talking about that the, and not taking it personally. I mm -hmm. mean, if you're a member of the dominant culture, it's not your fault. What is your fault is that you do nothing about it <laughs> and you don't see what's happening around you. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I hope, I hope that this is not Groundhog Day, that we get past words to real action, sustainable change, dismantling the hundreds of years mm. of systematic discrimination that is just built into every system that we have. But for most of us, it's the way it's always been. And so therefore, we've lost sight of the fact that just because it has doesn't mean it should. Right. Or, right. And that we can change it. That's the mm. thing. Yes. So, right. so affinity, assimilation, stereotype. The, the third one is um, is actually political oh, correctness. Oh, political correctness. Um, okay. We've always walked on eggshells around being politically correct and mm. being afraid to say things. But in actual fact, when I was writing the book, which was 2005, I, I was really talking about maybe we've gone too far with this tentativeness around being PC. And mm -hmm. uh, and then as as I began to think about it, I thought, well, I don't know, maybe we need to be a little bit careful here. We can't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I actually reframed PC to be polite consideration because what I really think we have to do is we have to be polite to each other. We have to be considerate of each other. Mm -hmm. We have to be curious with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we can do that, and cut each other some slack when we're trying, um, then then I think we'll make some progress. But, you know, PC hasn't served as well. It just pushed lots of issues under the ground. It yeah, it yeah. muted it because it was too difficult to talk about. And I think yes. you're right. It's having the courage of, I need to say something, but and if it's inelegant, give me the grace to either correct me, forgive me, but at least understand that the intent the intent is the conversation right. forward. Yes. Right. So affinity assimilation, PC. And then what's the fourth one then? The, the fourth one is called internalized oppression. And yeah. what what that that's the more academic of all of them. Basically, what it means is that people in marginalized cultures take on negative messages that they get from the dominant culture and then internalize them. So uh, for example, if, if people are told that in your culture, um, it being Scottish, that the food isn't good or, or you know, you, you don't know how to, you're not generous of spirit, which mm -hmm. we know is not true. Um, but we can take on these negative messages and turn them in on ourselves. So mm -hmm. it's a self-sabotaging that happens in, in, for example, the LGBT community, in the black community, in, in, for women. Um, you know, it, uh, quite often men will speak up without asking permission. Women will raise their hands like this, like they're, they're tentatively waiting to be asked to come into mm -hmm. the position. Uh, and so it really is the damage that's done when we take on the message from dominance and then we turn them in on ourselves. It's very, it's um, what's in Whistling Vivaldi is an excellent book. I think it was Claude Steele who wrote it, talking about internalized oppression. It's a very powerful concept. And I, I remember listening to that in one of your videos. So just give us that little snippet of why Whistling Vivaldi. 
So yeah, so so what what um, he did? He's a professor. At, I want to say at Stanford or UCLA. And what he did was one of his young black African American students noticed that white people were crossing the street to get away from him, and um, he decided to learn classical music, and he started whistling Vivaldi. Mm-hmm. And when he did that, white people stayed on the same side of the street and smiled at him as they walked past. And so what he was doing was assimilating to the mainstream culture, doing something to fit in, in order for them to be less afraid of them, to be comfortable with them. And and so that's part of, as I was saying earlier, part of the behavior that we have to do and the exhaustion that happens. And at the same time, what he was also acknowledging is the internalized messages that he gets when he sees white people crossing the street or clutching their purses in an elevator, that he's not safe to be around. It's just, I mean, the, the, the experiences that have been shared, I don't even like using the word stories because stories imply fables. Right. But the experiences that I've been reading that people have had through their lives just shock and appall me. And also shock and appall me, not just because somebody's gone through it, but because I was oblivious to just how widespread and systemic it was. Right. So as I think about our conversation here, Helen, um, what are some tips? And we're going to talk about how to get a hold of you and everything else in a moment. But as people who are listening to this and, and either immersed in it or on the sidelines wondering about how to get involved, what can we do personally and professionally to start creating an inclusive culture? Right. Well, there's a lot of things. Uh, the first thing is do your own work and mm-hmm. don't lean on people of color or people from different cultural groups to teach you. Um, so you, you can start by, you know, doing reading books or watching movies, etc., to educate yourself. The second thing is have conversations with people who look like you. It's not quite as interesting to sit down with other white people and talk about, you know, this is shocking what's going on, but let's talk about what we as white people can do uh, as distinct from sitting down with one of your black or African-American colleagues and saying, share your story with me. And they're exhausted from mm-hmm. sharing their stories with us. They're exhausted from trying to figure out why we don't get it, why mm-hmm. we didn't get it before. And to your point, Morag, and you're not alone. Uh, how could we have been so oblivious for so long? Yeah. There was an inconvenient truth there that we had the privilege of not having mm-hmm. to look at. And even when we looked at little snippets, we could look away. Uh, and so part of it is staying the course. Uh, part of it is not taking everything personally. So So that if you want to be an ally... You have to stay in the game. You can't just say, well, I didn't like what you said there. That hurt my feelings, so might drop them out. Um, we have to be committed to this. We have to be willing to um, to, to, to be a, a real ally, to step up, to, to be involved in our organizations, ERGs, for example, employee resource groups, um, to be an ambassador and advocate for change, to be a mentor for people who are different, um, to, and to speak up when we hear other white people, and we're talking race now, when you hear other white people saying things that are inappropriate, it's not okay to be silent. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that the allies can do. Um, the other thing is not to say things like, um, you know, the, the, the examples that always come to mind is I don't notice color 
or um, because if you don't notice color, you must be running red lights. And I'm gonna guess you're not. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so these things, you know, don't say I'm not a racist um, because the truth is if you're white, you are, you've got racism in you. Even if, if you are not overtly racist, it's still there. So there's a lot of things you can do to educate yourself without putting the burden of that onto people of color. So you mentioned earlier on the webinars that you've been given, but I know you go a lot deeper than that. How are some of your clients tapping into your expertise right now um, to, to start that conversation or accelerate the conversation in their teams and organizations? Right. So obviously I've moved my work from being face-to-face -face where I did keynotes for large groups or I did two and three day workshops that did a deeper dive into these subjects uh, to everything is virtual at the moment. So I'm doing webinars uh, specifically on becoming an ally. I'm doing webinars with leadership teams and with um, HR teams uh, and also with my consulting colleagues in human facets, working with people of color in organizations. Uh, so, so we're really continuing to take a deeper dive uh, and educate and give people an opportunity to talk. Okay. I'll make sure all your contact information is uh, embedded around the uh, video, but how can people get hold of you? They can email me at drhelenturnbull at humanfacets.com. Uh, my, my website is humanfacets.com. Okay. So thank you, Helen. I mean, it's been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate your insights. Is there a final word that you'd like to leave our listeners with um, so that we can help try to ensure that this isn't Groundhog Day? Mm. I, I think that one of my favorite quotes is from Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. But I also want to add to that, that the unchallenged brain is not worth trusting. So my, my appeal to people who are listening is to check what you're thinking and make sure that what you're saying to people and what you're thinking are, are in alignment and that you're not telling yourself a story that's not congruent. Thank you. Thank you.